Welcome to Intergenerational Politics with Jill Weinbanks and Victor Shi, where we host weekly political discussions that are engaging and relevant to all generations. As always, we want to thank you for listening to Intergenerational Politics. If you haven't done so already, be sure to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. And we also have a website, intergenerationalpolitics.com. This is Victor Xi. I'll be an incoming freshman at UCLA and also got elected as the youngest Joe Biden delegate here in Illinois. And I'm Jill Weinbanks, the co-host of this podcast and the author of The Watergate Girl, which I hope all of you will have a chance to read. Um, and yeah, tell, me, am, tell me when that came out. This came out February 25th of this year. Right during COVID. Seems like many years ago because... It was only a week or two later that we had the COVID shutdown. So my, um, unfortunately, my book tour was basically converted to Zoom, and the paperback edition is coming out next March. So maybe oh, there'll be another the book. book tour. Oh, Amazon the book this afternoon. Really? Oh yeah. Excellent. Okay, this afternoon. All right. Very soon. Um, anyway, today we are thrilled to be joined by Senator Harry Reid, who served as the senator from Nevada from 87 to 2007, a really good amount of time, and as the Senate Majority Leader from 2007 to 2015. He started his public service career as a city attorney for Las Vegas and then served as Lieutenant Governor of Nevada and a U.S. Congressman before being elected to the Senate. We have a packed episode ahead of us today. We want to address concerns that I know from Twitter are worrying a lot of you listening now. Who better to answer those questions about the power of the majority leader than the former majority leader, Senator Reid? The same is true for questions we all have about current Senate operations and rules, possible reforms to Senate, and especially for Victor and his generation, I know he wants to ask about your advice, Senator, for rising leaders. All right. Yeah. So thank you so much for being here, Senator Reed. We are so appreciative to have someone like you on the podcast, and we really look forward to this discussion. Um, let's jump right in. So, you know, you left the Senate in 2015, and since then, a lot has changed and a lot has happened. Um, let's talk about maybe the biggest shift, which seems to be kind of a formation of a cult of personality around President Trump um, from Republican senators like Ted Cruz, Mitch McConnell, and Lindsey Graham, all of whom you served with when you were in the Senate. So uh, to get us started, um, based on your experience with all of those senators, are you surprised by any of their current actions? I'm very disappointed in that we have Republican senators, with the possible exception of Mitt Romney, who have been kowtowing to Donald Trump, so it's embarrassing. I can't imagine if we look back at the people I served with in the Senate who were Republicans, Mark Catfield, Danforth from Missouri, Chafee, Rhode Island, uh, Heinz, Pennsylvania. I, they would never, ever have allowed a Republican president to do that to the Senate. Mm -hmm. And what is so sad, as far as I'm concerned, is it's not good for the body politic. What I mean by that is that um, the Senate was known worldwide, the United States Senate, as the debating society of the world. It was a place that people went because they could freely exchange ideas. But what has happened in recent years is the Senate has become only a factory for proving judges. The Republican the Republicans led by Mitch McConnell, who I served with for a long, long time. We were both whips together, we were Republican leaders together, but he's turned the Senate into just a place to prove judges. That's all they do. They have no amendments to vote on. They don't vote on bills. It is just a real travesty of what the Senate's all about. Yeah, and we definitely want to get into the judges because that is a major problem with uh, Mitch McConnell in this Senate, as you identified. But um, just for historical context for my generation, um, 
you briefly mentioned this, but were, were senators in the past loyal to the president and particularly for Republican senators, were they ever loyal, this loyal to, let's say someone like George H.W. Bush or George W. Bush um, or to their party? Um, I learned when I first came to the Senate that the United States Senator does not work for the president. We work with the president. There are three separate equal branches of government, judicial, legislative, and executive branch. And I thought we should do everything we could to protect those three powers of government. And that's what I did. And I think that's pretty much what Senate used to be thought of. Mm -hmm. We are an institution. We're proud of who we are. And we're not going to let the president ruin who we are. Yeah. And, you know, since you were once Senate Majority Leader, do you have any explanation for why Republican senators like Lindsey Graham, Ted Cruz, Mitch McConnell are in total support of Trump? Is it that, you know, they've changed as people or is it more that their policy views have been altered? Um, or, or maybe is it just their lust for power now? President Trump has frightened Republican senators. They are afraid that he will do something to make sure they have a primary. And so as a result of being so uh, wanting to keep their job, they turn into somebody that there's not a lot of respect for. We need people who are independent. Uh, and you cannot have a legislative body that is directed by the executive branch. And that's what's happened here. The United States Senate has not been a body that has been separate and apart from the executive branch. And that is a travesty. It's too bad. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm so disappointed in Lindsey Graham, you know, when he and John McCain worked together as a couple of rebels, they, people looked at them with admiration, not always agreeing, but admired them for their uh, rebellious streak they had. We have senators who are just... Uh, doing anything that Trump wants done, that's what they do. They do not in any way offend him. They're afraid of him. And that is something that is new in the American body politic. Yeah, it's so dangerous. And it's just so stunning for my generation to see the Senate kind of evolve into, you know, like you said, just a, a, a branch of government that just nominates judges and, 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 you know, sends judges off to the courts. But, um, you know, even after January 20th, which is when, um, Biden will be inaugurated. We expect Trump to, I guess, keep campaigning uh, for his uh, 2024 run and to repeat some of the conspiracy theories that he now espouses. Um, do you think once Trump leaves office, anything will change in terms of kind of the Republican senator's loyalty for him? Like, will we see more Mitt Romney's in the Senate who uphold um, once conservative values or will they just still kind of, kind of hold on to the president? I believe that uh, Donald Trump thinks he's going to remain a power in America. But I predict on January 20th, he steps out of his house and a deep quicksand. He is, he's no longer president. Those sexual assault cases women have been trying to move forward on for years, they're going to be allowed to move forward on. He, he owes money. He's not going to be able to borrow money. He's, is financial status is in jeopardy. And I think he's going to have a very, very difficult time on January 20th from remaining a power. And I think uh, Republicans who have been at his beck and call are going to become much more independent. And that's an understatement. Mm -hmm. We can only hope for that. And um, I want to move on to someone who you know pretty well and who we want to kind of focus on in this conversation. Um, and that is Mitch McConnell, um, who has described himself as the Grim Reaper of the Senate um, because he's you know virtually blocked every important piece of legislation that Democrats support. Um, it would be useful to hear you kind of talk about how legislation gets voted on in the Senate, starting with the role of the Senate Majority Leader for my generation to kind of understand that process. Well, the problem with uh, people of your age, you really have not, you have not seen the Senate as, as it's supposed to work. Mitch McConnell has been, uh, he prides himself to be called the Grim Reaper. 
He's a cold and different person. I know him very well. Uh, we work together. Uh, we are friends. But I think we know each other. And I know that I know him. And he has purposely stayed away from legislating. His whole goal has been to change the country in the way that he feels most appropriate. That is, get all these right-wing judges that he can get under the bench. And that's what he's done. But I think American people are beginning to see that it's not working as well as he thought it would because many of the decisions that are being made against Donald Trump are coming from mm -hmm. judges McConnell put forward. So the judiciary is uh, at this stage is not letting the executive branch of government dictate what they do. Talking more about Mitch McConnell and some of what he's done, um, one example that we've seen Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell's, you know, just preventing an up or down vote, uh, most recently with um, the COVID relief package and the $2,000 relief payment for Americans, which is something that both Democrats and Republicans supported. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, four years ago, blocking a hearing and a vote for President Obama's nominee to the Supreme Court, Merrick Garland. Um, is there anything that, you know, can prevent the Senate Majority Leader from blocking any legislation, any votes at will? Or like, what gives him the power to just block so much? Well, you know that I did something that hadn't been done in a while. Uh, Barack Obama was president. He was very popular. But during the first Congress, for the first time in the history of the country, Republicans filibustered the Secretary of Defense. By the way, it was Chuck Cagle, Republican senator. They filibustered him. We couldn't get anything done. They were filibustering all of his cabinet selections. They, we, they couldn't directly attack organized labor, so they did it, went around the corner and did it surreptitiously by going after the National Labor Relations Board, yeah. which they wouldn't allow to have a quorum. The D.C. Circuit, the second most important court in the country, we had five or six vacancies. They wouldn't allow us to fill those. So what I did, I changed the rule, uh, changed it to a simple majority. And that's what we did. The reason we were able to get Barack Obama's cabinet officials approved, the way we were able to take care of the National Labor Relations Board uh, was because I changed the rule. The reason I was able to get the DC circuit slots filled is because we changed the rule. Now, some have criticized me. Why did Reed do that? I'll bet, I'll bet he's going to regret having done that. That is, I don't regret it at all. One of the best things that ever happened in the country because Barack Obama, because of the changes we made, we were able to get the Affordable Care Act. We passed that finally on Christmas Eve. It was the first time in 150 years that there had been a session held on Christmas Eve. We did that to get the Affordable Care Act done. We did Dodd-Frank, the most mm -hmm. significant reworking of Wall Street in the history of the country. We were able to do many, many things because um, we thought, and the Senate agreed with me, that we needed to move forward. And I don't regret having done that at all. Mm -hmm. And in fact, uh, to show how hypocritical uh, the Republicans are, they changed it. I made it so that to get a member of the Supreme Court took a supermajority, 60 votes. They changed that. We didn't. They changed it. Can you talk a little more about that one, about the change to the 60 votes? Well, uh, when I changed the rule, there were a number of senators said, look, we're willing to go along with you in this. But there were a number, especially Barbara Boxer, said, I don't want you to have the Supreme Court uh, a simple majority. I want a super majority. So as an effort to placate her and a few others, well, that's the rule that we did. So we didn't change that. Uh, we didn't change it to a simple majority. The Republicans did. Mm -hmm. And so about what I did, don't understand what really happened. Right. And do you think that can be changed back so that you would actually have um, a supermajority for approving members of the Supreme Court? It's always hard to go backwards. If you look at legislation, legislative procedure, you usually don't redo things. 
It's possible, of course, it can be done. And it may be done, but I wouldn't think, I don't think it's gonna happen very soon. I have written an op-ed for the New York Times. I have said that uh, you can't have a democracy if it takes 60% of the vote every time. And so I have predicted that it's not a question if the filibuster is gonna go away. It's a question when it's gonna go away, because it's gonna go away. You can't, I repeat, have a legislative body that requires 60% of the vote. Now that's not the end of the world. The 60 vote majority is in the constitution. It was something that was done by the Senate itself. And I think that uh, it's not the end of the world. Those, we would still have a bicameral legislature. We'd have two year terms for the House, six year terms for the Senate. It worked out just fine. So I, as I said, filibusters on its way out. Yeah. Um, one one last thing about Mitch McConnell before um, I pass it off to Jill is, you know, Jill and I and Democrats, we look at what Mitch McConnell and Republicans are doing with just, we kind of get disgusted by what they're doing. But politically, do you think any of what they're doing hurts or helps Republicans or does it just make us mad? I think it frankly helps Republicans because they are uh, uh, only have a few tunes they can carry. One of them is abortion, and one of them is labor unions. Hmm. And uh, so their broad spectrum of things they are interested in is, is pretty narrow. So I don't think that uh, they are changing much. They're only interested in a few issues mm -hmm. that uh, is important to their uh, constituents. And I mentioned what they are. Thank you for that. Um, of course, I think it hurts democracy that we don't have what you refer to as the debates that the Senate was intended to have, that you don't have the kind of dialogue that used to exist that I'm old enough to remember when there was civil discussion and debate on the merits of things. But let's move on to something that has dominated. Yeah, let, me get, let, let me, Jill, just sure, say go this. Ahead. You're absolutely right. Uh, the Senate has become so pure that they get nothing done. One reason we were able to get a lot of things done is we were able to compromise. Legislation is the art of compromise. And for example, I served as chairman and or a member, whoever was in control of the Senate with Pete Domenici for 15, 20 years, I don't know, a long time, more than 10 years. And we worked together. Uh, we worked together that we were able to get things that Republicans wanted, Democrats wanted, we had to compromise. Mm -hmm. That's the way it should be. But they've become so pure now, they don't get anything done. They, they, you don't have the ability to work like I did with, for example, with dementia, to work things out. Legislation, I repeat, is the, is the art of being able to compromise. And I think, and I think, just the ability to compromise would help my generation so much. Just that model of good governance, um, I think, would help young people. Just, especially in this hyper-partisan world. Um, but go ahead, Jill. I'm, I'm well. I'm hoping, of course, that with a President Biden who has that skill of compromise and who recognizes the need for it, that your generation, Victor, will be able to see that. What I want to ask Senator Reid about now has to do with something that will play out on January 6th, and that is Congress is set to certify the results of the Electoral College, and that's something that is normally just adding up the numbers. It's a mathematical computation, but this year there is a threat that will make it a threat to democracy, and that is uh, to eliminate the fact that citizens voted and that their votes are counted. Uh, Trump has claimed since November that he won the election, even though the evidence is quite the contrary. And now he has persuaded a number of members of both houses without a shred of evidence that he won. And he's convincing his voters that the election was a fraud. And there are now 12 senators and more than 140 members of Congress of the House of Representatives who are going to challenge the electoral college votes. And I, I want people to understand, and I'm hoping you can help our listeners to understand exactly 
what an objection means, what it does to the credibility of the election and our whole process. Um, so let's start specifically by talking about the process of certifying the results. Once it goes to Congress and the who opens the, the results that are sent from each state's electoral college? So, you know, each let's state, get Each state will uh, have a, a little mahogany box and they put in their, their uh, how, what happened in Nevada, Arizona, Utah. And uh, it's, it is, at that time, it becomes a, uh, something that's all over with. It's uh, what happens on January 6th, nothing more than a, a clerical function. They can, I had a lawyer in Las Vegas who wasn't a very good lawyer. So he, his theory was, when in doubt, wave your arms, scream and shout. That's all they can do. They're going to wave their arms, scream and shout. It, it's a clerical function. Even though Pence, uh, I think he even understands he can do nothing to stop that. And uh, I've been, I, uh, what I've heard from him the last few days has been quite remarkably positive as far as I'm concerned, because it appears he's not going to be as stooge for Trump in this instance. Yeah, he has said some conflicting things. He, at first, it sounded like he was having none of it. He was rejecting the Gohmert ridiculous lawsuit. But now he's saying he welcomes the objections. So um, let's go back to, so you have these mahogany boxes. So there's 51 of them from the District of Columbia and the 50 states. And they're handed to who? Is it the president of the Senate who opens that box and announces the winner? Or who who does that? It's, it's probably just uh, in, the, in the Senate, you have some officers that are elected to run the Senate. They, they're staff people. Mm. They're the ones that handle it. Did they have one is a tally clerk and you know they have certain jo jobs they have to fulfill. They're the ones that it is isn't it is not the president of the Senate. Okay. okay. And and my understanding is that the twelfth amendment of the Constitution says that Congress will certify the electoral college votes. That's why they even get involved and establishes a joint session so that the House and the Senate sit together for this. Um, but then it, and then it takes, my understanding, a member of each of the houses, a senator and a representative, to raise an objection to a particular electoral uh, vote, to raise the objection, and then you go into separate um, sessions. So the, the Senate would meet by itself, and you have a time-limited discussion of that objection. Is that a correct understanding? Yes, and it, it's not as if it hadn't been done before. It's been done in recent years. Uh, I'm, I believe it was Blurber Boxer and someone else raised these objections. Uh, very typically, Barbara was always kind of the point of the spear on a lot of this stuff. So really, we, we've done uh, it's happened before. Do you remember what her objection was based on? Was there a valid reason for the objection? It was valid in her mind. That was good enough. Okay. And then once it's raised and you have a discussion, um, my understanding is that nothing happens unless uh, there is a majority vote in both houses to sustain the objection. So yes, is that correct? Yes, it is. So then nothing will happen if the House, which is majority Democrat, rejects the objections raised, other than that you have delayed the final confirmation. Yeah, you slow things down, but you can't stop it. Can't stop it. Okay. So um, is there any consequence for a senator or a, a member of the House objecting? I mean, is there, do they suffer any penalty, either politically or do they lose their uh, committee assignments, or is the answer is no. The only, the only uh, referee, so to speak, is the people that uh, vote for them at home in the district or in this particular state. So it's there are no penalties. They can do whatever they want to do, it, but they're always taking a chance because uh, some people think they're making a fool of themselves doing this kind of stuff. 
And and do you think that this um, move to object to the electoral vote will hurt the Republican Party or will it help it? Particularly, I want to ask about Georgia, where we have, um, you know, the day before um, this, there is a very important runoff election. Um, so do you think it'll help or hurt them? Well, what Trump has done has not helped the Republican Party for, ha for his having had a hour-long conversation with the Secretary of State of Georgia, a Republican, by the way, and his counsel. Uh, he did everything he could to get them to back off. And he's 11, he said, I need 11,900 votes. Find them for me. And they were very respectful and just saying, Mr. President, facts are wrong. We've, we've had the vote calculated three separate times, and it's just like the way it is. It's not going to change. Mm -hmm. It's um, I, that was going to be my next question because I listened to that full hour, and I encourage everyone listening to us now to go online and listen for yourselves to that conversation and to how it was handled by Raffensperger and his lawyer. Um, do you Jill, think it's really it's really embarrassing that the president of the United States of America for an hour talking gibberish as if he were a fifth grader. I mean, a sixth grader would have done a better job than he did. It is really, to me, embarrassing. And he should be ashamed of himself. I, I, I listened. And first of all, it sounded like a QAnon meeting as he repeated conspiracy theory after conspiracy theory. I had to look up um, the name of um, the uh, Miss Freeman because it's something that unless you read right-wing news media, you wouldn't have heard her name, but she was mentioned numerous times. He kept, and he was, Donald Trump really was the entire hour of the conversation. There was very little from anyone else. A few remarks from Mark Meadows, a few from uh, Cleta Mitchell, who was a lawyer for him, um, and a few from the um, Secretary of State and the Deputy Secretary of State, Ryan. I, I was very impressed with the Republican Secretary of State and his lawyer. Yes. were most respectful of the president. I thought they conducted themselves very well. And the people of Georgia should be very proud of what they, how they acted. Mm -hmm. Totally agree. Totally, totally agree. Um, and I, I, you know, I think we've talked about the filibuster enough. Um, and, but I, I want to talk about it in the context of the rapid confirmation of so many judges, many uh, obviously all con extremely conservative, but many of them have been rated by legal organizations like the ABA as unqualified, not just minimally qualified, but as unqualified. Um, and given what you've described as the change to the filibuster that you made as amended by the Republicans to make uh, even the Supreme Court a majority vote, not a supermajority, um, is there any procedural tactics that the Senate could enact under President Biden that could prevent this kind of future abuse of the process? Well, it's something I'm confident they will look over. Uh, you know, they have, they have, the new Congress has absolute power. They can change the way judges are selected. They can do that with, with, uh, within their own, uh, each Congress can make it so that to be a member of the Supreme Court, you need X number of votes. You know, can change it many different ways. Now, I don't think they will do that. I think that uh, Biden will be able to work with McConnell. And uh, I think McConnell will be especially, especially for fortunate enough to pick up two seats in Georgia. That will, that will weaken McConnell significantly. Yeah. I just, it's a, to me, it's a indication that uh, our country has survived Donald Trump. Everyone should understand and cheer for that because our democracy has been put to the test with Donald Trump, who is, who is, we don't, we're not rid of him yet, but I think that we should feel good that we've survived so far. I, I agree. Um, 
let me stick with judges, but move to SCOTUS, to the Supreme Court. Um, and the question now has been raised as to whether the number of members of the court should be raised to 11 or even 13 because of what McConnell did in terms of blocking even a hearing for Merrick Garland and then pushing through uh, Justice Amy Coney Barrett in a time frame that was, you know, basically days before the election, um, much, much closer to the election than when Garland was nominated. So people feel that there are two stolen seats and that in order to make up for that, you have to add at least two uh, new justices to the court. And there is no constitutional limit to how many members there could be. Um, do you have an opinion on that? There is no, the, the new Congress has the ability to increase the number of judges, of the Supreme Court justices, or make it smaller. They can do that any way that they want. No one disputes their ability to do that. Now, the question is whether they're going to do it. Now, we're fortunate whether we're going to have a majority or not a majority in the Senate. Fortunate that Joe Biden's there because he's a longtime chairman of the Judiciary Committee. Mm -hmm. uh, first time I ever met Joe Biden uh, was a brand new senator. And uh, there had been a Republican uh, governor in Nevada, and they had gotten a Republican House member to select a judge to a federal judge. I went to Joe Biden. I said, Mr. Chairman, I, I didn't know him. I said, Mr. Chairman, explain the situation to him. I don't want him to be a judge. Gave him the man's name. He said, you don't want him to be a judge? He won't be a judge. That was my first meeting with him. And that's, so Joe Biden is a man, always says to me, Remember, he always he'll say this every time we get together. Remember, I'm a Senate guy. I mean, Joe Biden's a Senate guy. So I have great confidence that Joe Biden's going to handle that well because he's experienced. And I think it's fair to say that Joe Biden is a man of wisdom. He's been through the trials of life. I admire him so very, very much for his public service, but also for what a nice man he is. I'd have some back surgery. I was here. I was in bed, my home. He flew to LA and he told uh, his staff, he said, I'm going to stop in Vegas on the way back. I want to talk to Harry. And the doorbell rings. Sure enough, it's Joe Biden walks in, pulls a chair up beside my bed and talked to me for an hour. That's Joe Biden. Yeah. So I have, I have great respect for him as a person, as a legislator, as a human being. Oh, I'm so glad to hear that. And I'm also glad because I have three more questions that are things that have bothered me for a long time and that I am just delighted that I can ask you um, because I think you are the person who could maybe help me with it. And one is in the last four years, as I've watched not just confirmation hearings, but oversight hearings and the impeachment uh, hearings and the impeachment trial in the Senate. I am concerned about the uh, process for conducting those hearings where you have alternating uh, Democrats and Republicans, depending on if, if it's the House, Democrats go first because they're the majority and then Republican, you alternate, there's a short time limit. People can, basically the witness can filibuster by not answering the question, just keep talking and fill the time. Um, and I'm wondering if you think that is still an effective means of doing the questioning. And uh, keep in mind that I thought that during the Trump impeachment, for example, staff ask very effective questions and their, their questions are the ones that got quoted during the trial. And of course, during Watergate, it was staff who asked some of the most important questions, including the one about, is there a taping system? Yes. So um, I'm just wondering if, if we should look at reforming how questions are asked and by each new Each new Congress has the ability to change that any way they want. And what do you think? Would, do you think it's something that should be changed or do you think this method works? Well, I don't think it could be changed 
I think I think it's fair to give the minority the ability to ask questions. I think that if anything, what I've been somewhat disappointed in is the in the in the conduct of the meeting. They give too much uh, space for the witness itself. If the witness is coming in, it appears he's just uh, playing. Yeah, I I, 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 I think they should. I think the chairman should be able to say, "Listen, Mr. Witness, uh, we're not going to listen to you uh, pontificate here. Um, I'm going to recommend that if this continues, I'm going to recommend to." I, members of this committee that we vote no on it. I think one of the things that bothers me the most is that it's this five minute limit and that if you had 10 or 15 minutes, you could do a much more effective job of asking a question and then following up on the answer and really getting the witness. They, they, they have a right, they, they can change that. Every Congress they can change it however they want. So do you think that, okay, are there other reforms that you think are needed to the Senate? Um, and are there any that are feasible given that at best it's going to be a 50-50 Congress? A 50-50 Senate, rather. Yeah. Um, I would suggest that we would better serve if they, whoever is the chairman of the committee, that they have whatever time they think is appropriate. They're losing five minutes now to ask questions back and forth. But I think they would have to um, make sure that the witness is responding to the questions. If it appears they're not, I think that there has to be more direct uh, criticism of what they're doing and for the rest, because the, all the committee is not gonna be there most of the time. Could be only two or three senators. And so I would, think that what I, if I were chairman of that committee, I would say, you're not responding to the questions. I'm going to recommend to my committee members, we all vote no. Okay, so my last burning question that I want to ask you is, do you think that Biden should investigate Trump and indict him if the evidence warrants it? Or you should know, he? I, I had a long conversation last night with one of my friends who's a federal judge. And uh, conversation was based on this. He said, I think that there are crimes that Trump has committed. And I said to him, I don't, I don't want to be a banana republic. We can't, uh, we disagree with what the president has done. I don't think it makes us look good to try to bring criminal charges against him. He said, it's not a banana republic. Look at what's going on. They, they've done it in France. They've done it in Israel. They've done it around the world. And I think that we're making a big mistake by not holding the president accountable. And even though I started off on the other side of that issue, he convinced me, my federal judge friend, he was right and I was wrong. I'm, I'm glad to hear that because I would have tried to convince you of the same thing. I feel that possibly if Richard Nixon had been indicted, although we couldn't because of the uh, pardon, that maybe Donald Trump would have been less reckless in his conduct. He wouldn't have felt empowered in the way that he has been. So I think, depending on what the evidence shows, that at least there should be an investigation, and then we can go from there. And I don't think it is a banana republic. I think it is showing that we are a country of laws, that we abide by the rule of law. Um, but I know Victor has some equally burning questions for you. So, As I said, uh, I started out last night with my man who would federal, he's been a federal judge for 17 years. I was on the other side of that issue. He convinced me I was wrong and he was right. Yeah. And, and see, that's how dialogue works. We have those conversations and then maybe we convince yeah. people and <laughs> that's, that's, that's good for my generation to hear as well. Um, Okay, so I want to move on to Georgia and the runoff races there, which um, is on the forefront of everyone's minds right now. Um, you know, the power of the Senate hangs in the balance. If both Ossoff and Warnock win, the Senate will be split 50-50, but the majority leader will be a Democrat. And Democrats will have control with the VP casting and deciding uh, in being the deciding vote. But if either Warnock or Ossoff loses, that means that Mitch McConnell maintains control of the Senate. So 
I guess let's first start off with the scenario. You know, Warnock and Ossoff both win. It'll be a very slim majority, so there will probably be difficulties in terms of passing legislation for Democrats still, right? Let me give you a little vignette here. Maybe off subject, but I want to tell you anyway. It's good for you to learn a little bit about history. Uh, I was the was a Democratic leader, and the Senate was 50 Democrats, 50 Republicans. Mm. I thought to myself, what can I do to change that? Mm. And I came up with this idea. Jim Jeffords was a senator from Vermont. And I went to him and I said, Jim, I'm going to give you a deal you shouldn't refuse. I said, I am chairman of the Environment Public Works Committee. I have a staff of 18. I have a beautiful suite of offices. Tell you what I'll do. I'm a Democrat. You're a Republican. Uh, I will give you my chairmanship. I know my caucus will approve this. I'll give you my all my 18 staffers. I'll give you my suite of offices. You switch parties. And he agreed to do that. And the Senate became 51 to 49. So that's... Oh, wow. Uh, that is such a great never happened, story. Never happened in the history of the country, but I did that. Wow. Well, I, so I'm assuming that that probably can't happen to, in today's partisan world. I guess, do you think that, that could happen? Like next uh, next Congress well, also? Never, never happened before. <laughs> right, right. I'm the first and only one to do that. Wow. that That's remarkable. Oh, my goodness. Um, Well, so I guess, is there anything that you think you know, depending on who's the Senate majority leader, maybe it's Chuck Schumer. Um, do you think that he should use some of the same tactics that McConnell has and block hearings for anything that Republicans want? Or do you think we should go back to like a moment of civility and kind of put the past behind us? Um, what should the next Democratic leader do, do you think? My gut reaction is this. I think with Joe Biden as president, that there's going to be every effort made to try to have a normal legislative body. And I think that he will try very hard to do that. I think he will work with Senator Schumer to get Chuck to agree to do that. And I think if the Republicans show a little bit of interest in having a good legislative body, uh, maybe we don't have to be the uh, House record of the Republicans have been. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so one other topic on this um, and building consensus. So, you know, so much of your career was, you know, about compromise. So much of it was building consensus so that Democrats and Republicans would support um, the legislation that you're trying to advance. But for, you know, Chuck Schumer, the next Democratic majority leader, how hard will it be for um, that person to build bipartisan consensus? And how hard will it be to ensure that, you know, each of the 50 Democratic um, senators who are might, who might you know be in the Senate if John Ossoff and Warnock are elected, um, support Democrats and, and their policies? I believe that uh, if the members of the United States Senate understand that they are a separate independent branch of government, they're not working for the president, they're working with the president, I think that they we can have a normal legislative body again. Mm-hmm. And I believe that Joe Biden, Chuck Schumer will do what they can to give the Republicans a chance to work that out. If not, then they have to do some things that I hope will not be necessary. Yeah, for sure. Um, okay, let's move on to the scenario that none of ho- us hope will happen, which is if Warnock or Ossoff loses, um, Republicans maintain control. Mitch McConnell will still be the majority leader. Um, if that does happen, do you think... You know, you mentioned Joe Biden was, you know, a man of the Senate. Um, do you think Mitch McConnell will act any differently than he has right now or with Obama, I guess, um, given their past relationship and Biden's promise to represent all Americans and to, you know, build that bipartisan consensus with Democrats and Republicans? Joe Biden will try very, very hard to get along with Mitch McConnell. But I know Joe Biden. And Joe Biden is not somebody you can push around. When he was a young man growing up, he had a tremendous stammer, and a lot of people made fun of him. He was known as shoe leather. He was as tough as shoe leather. He had so many fights because people made fun of how he talked. Mm-hmm. Joe Biden is a nice guy, but you can only push him so far. He is as tough as shoe leather. 
Wow. Yeah. I mean, so Mitch McConnell, I, I'm not sure he's listening to this podcast, but don't push Joe Biden around or else bad things might come your way. Um, okay. So a couple questions to end the podcast. Um, you know, for you, it must be agonizing for you know you to see the current dynamic of the Senate and its hyper-partisanship. If you could you know, bring all of the senators together of both parties, what would you say to them? What I would say to them is that one thing I learned very early on in the Senate from Robert Byrd of West Virginia, he said, make sure you always understand that you work as a legislator. You do not work for the president. You work with the president. I would try to tell all the senators, be proud of who you are. You are a separate branch of government. You're the legislative branch of government. And you need to let the executive branch of government make suggestions to you, work with you, but don't let them push you around. That's what I would tell them. Be proud of who you are. For sure. Um, okay, so... So you would tell the senators that. What would you tell to the general public um, about the state of the Senate? And, you know, many people have become a little bit skeptical about what the government can actually do for them. So what would you say to, you know, the the general, just, I guess, American citizens who are um, just look at government and, you know, think, you know, I shouldn't care about what the Senate does or or the Senate is in, you know, kind of bad conditions right now? I would first of all say that uh, the country is going through a very difficult period of its existence based on what's going on with Trump-led Republicans. Never in the history of the country has the Republican Party or the Democratic Party followed in lockstep with a president as Republicans are walking lockstep with Donald Trump. And it's an aberration. I don't think it'll happen again. I think that it's going to take a little time to work our way out of that. So that we, as members of the Senate, understand we're a separate and independent body. And we'll always remember we have the House of Representatives. I worked with Nancy Pelosi when she was first elected speaker. American people are very fortunate to have this woman as speaker of House of Representatives. The House is an extremely important body. It is a body that uh, has, it's like the British Parliament, whichever party is in the majority, they run it, get what they want done. We, so we have Nancy Pelosi there in the foreseeable future. Mm-hmm. And we have Chuck Schumer in the Senate. They're both very seasoned veterans. You got a new president coming in who's a very seasoned veteran and understands the legislative process. He was eight years as vice president, he understands the executive process. And uh, I think that uh, Mitch McConnell better try to get along, you know, much better off than trying to fight the program because he's got a lot of wisdom that's going to be in opposition to what he's going to be trying to do if he tries to continue the way he has been. Sure. Yeah. All right. So the last question that um, we have on this episode is, you know, given your tremendous life in public service, um, you know, starting off as a city attorney in Las Vegas, going on to become the lieutenant governor and um, U.S. senator, for, for many people in my generation and for many young people who may want to pursue a career in politics or in public service, um, what is your advice to them? Well, I made a conscious decision to do public service. I practiced law. I did quite well. But I think public service is something that young people should look forward to. Not, you don't necessarily have to run for Senate. You don't have to run for city council. Maybe just work in a staff. I found much of my work was done that was very successful. It was based on the good staff I had. They were were staff members who were working on Capitol Hill because they wanted to, because they knew that they could change government for the better. I believe that. I think young people should look to public service. There's so much can be done. I would also say this. You know, it's nice of you to to recognize that I've been city attorney and state legislator, lieutenant governor, and all that kind of stuff. But I also lost. I, you know, I lost an election. Mm-hmm. I lost a statewide election by 524 votes for the United States Senate. I won an election for the United States Senate by 428 votes. So you have to be willing 
to take a chance. Mm -hmm. And just because you lose doesn't mean you're all through. My friend Dick Durbin, who's the second ranking member of the Senate now, uh, lost quite a few races before he was successful. Don't be afraid to take a chance. If it's something that you think is important, I think it's important. I think it's great for young men and women to be involved in public service. And from the time I was first elected to the Senate, there's been a tremendous change for the better. Uh, when I was first elected to the Senate, there was only one woman, Okoski from Maryland. But now uh, we have lots of women. Uh, 25% or so of the entire uh, Congress is made up of women is growing all the time. In Nevada, for example, the majority of the legislature is women. Majority of those in the assembly, majority of those in the House assembly, I'm sorry, and those in the state Senate are women. So women have now, um, they're doing better than holding their own. So young men and women mm -hmm. should be involved. I believe that my experience dictates to me that the Senate became a much better place when we had more women. Women and men think differently. And I have, I have I, every chance I get, I tout the fact that I, I watched evolve the Senate changing for more women. And every time we got an additional woman, the Senate became a better place. Well, that is the perfect way to end this podcast. And um, Jill, I don't know if you want to say anything before we end, but this was I, such I, a phenomenal all, I, discussion. Honestly, yes, I do. I want to say I hope that every new member of Congress has been listening to this episode because you've given some very wise advice. I hope President-elect Biden is listening. I hope that um, all young people will follow your advice. Mm -hmm. There is nothing more rewarding than a public service career. And we want to thank you so much for joining us today. And uh, I, I offer you the opportunity if you want to add anything about your hopes for the future or the state of politics. Well, right the only now. thing I would, only thing I would say is, you're an exemplary example of someone who got involved in politics when a lot of women weren't being involved, and uh, you made America a better place. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. <laughs> I can't, I'm embarrassed, but delighted, and hopefully we can talk to you again in the future. Thank you sure. very much for being with Thank us. Thank you so much. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Intergenerational Politics. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts to support future episodes. Thanks so much. See you in our next episode.